Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Greg Crouch on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, China's Wings, War, Intrigue, Romance, and Adventure in the Middle Kingdom During the Golden Age of Flight. You've probably heard of the Flying Tigers, at least if you're an American who's interested in World War II. When I was a kid, I loved the Flying Tigers. I read everything I could about them. I saw the movie The Flying Tigers, and I even built a P-40 Warhawk with that distinctive shark's mouth nose art. And though I guess I did know quite a bit about the Flying Tigers, I didn't understand the context in which they fought. Happily, now I do, and it is largely because I have read Greg's fine book, China's Wings. He doesn't tell the story of the Tigers. He tells the story of another group that you probably haven't heard of that was arguably more important than the Tigers, and that is the men who founded and worked in and later fought with the China National Aviation Corporation. The CNAC pioneered commercial aviation in China in the early 1930s, and after the Japanese invaded, they were, for various reasons, drawn into the conflict. They were sort of the flying tigers before the flying tigers. I guess more importantly, they created what is called the hump. That is the trans-Himalayan route from India to China. This was very important during the war effort, particularly for the nationalists, but for all of the anti-Japanese forces during the war. I think I'm giving the impression that this is a sort of standard academic history, but it's far from that. This is a tale of remarkable adventure. There are so many good stories in this book, I can't even begin to tell you. I joked during the interview that Greg should sell the film rights. And on reflection, it really wasn't much of a joke because the book really is cinematic. There's even a love interest or two. In any case, I hope that you go out and buy this book. I'm sure that you will enjoy it. I enjoyed talking to Greg today. And without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Gregory. Hi, how are you, Marshall? I'm very well today. How are you? I'm doing great. Good, glad to hear it. Today we're talking with Gregory Crouch about his heck of a read, China's Wings, War, Intrigue, Romance, and Adventure in the Middle Kingdom during the Golden Age of Flight. And I have to say, this is really a thump of a book. Uh, You should buy it, and you should start reading it, and you should prepare to be uh, up for uh, several nights and probably not go to work during several days because there is a lot of really interesting material here. It uh, reminded me a little bit of War and Peace, I have to say it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of odd, I know, but there were a lot of characters and a lot of things happen, and sometimes there's a war and sometimes there's not a war, and there's a lot of daring do and there's romance and there's everything. And have you sold the film rights to this? I have not. And from your lips to God's ear, Marshall, I would be delighted to sell them. Because I tell you what, this one is uh, perfect for a kind of ensemble cast movie with, you know, your sort of six or seven A-list actors and actresses, because everything's here. My dream uh, would be, I think it's the perfect bookend to the trifecta of HBO series about the Second World War. You have Band of Brothers about Europe the Pacific about the Pacific and China's wings would cover the old China, Burma, India theater from a very unique viewpoint. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And also uh, you you would get the opportunity, not you, but the, uh, the watcher or the viewer in this case to see all these cool planes. (laughs) Yeah. I I call there. I've discovered that people have a real weakness for old aviation pictures. I've taken to calling it aviation porn. Oh, they do. I was uh, actually staying with a friend of mine last week who just went on and on about precisely the planes that are in um, are, are in your book. And we'll talk about them in due time. But uh, let's begin the interview, if you would, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in uh, Goleta, California, which is next to Santa Barbara. And um, I've always been really fascinated by history in general and World War II history in particular because my family is very British. Both of my parents were young children 
during the Second World War, and both of their sort of family stories are entwined with the history of that war. My father was bombed in London during the Battle of Britain, and my mother had, you know, evacuated children come live with her out in the Shropshire countryside uh, from Birmingham and Liverpool. And so this sort of milieu very much permeated my growing up. Um, and, um, you know, I really wanted to go into the military, and I, I went to West Point, and I took a military history degree while I was there. Um, and, you know, when I served my light infantry time as an infantry officer, I, I didn't fall in love with the Army, so I didn't stay in. I, I left the Army to become a climbing bum in 1992-93, and I was pretty spectacularly successful as a climbing bum, <laughs> living out of my car and driving around the country. I suppose this isn't your normal history professor's recitation. No. Um, but while I was climbing, I did a ton of reading, and, and that's always the crux to me of being a writer is you must be a reader. If, if you don't read, you're not in the game. And um, uh, when I would go on these big climbing expeditions, typically to you know Patagonia and Alaska, and do these pretty big and dangerous climbs, well, there's also a lot of downtime on those trips, and I did tons and tons of reading. And... Um, when I, uh, in the middle 90s, I got into writing through writing for the climbing magazines, and my love of history quickly engaged in that, too. I would write articles that were basically climbing history articles for Rock and Ice and Climbing Magazine, and they were generally very well received because I focused on the story aspect of history while always trying, of course, to be exactly historically accurate you know, history is nothing more than a whole succession of great stories. So that captivation with story is essential to it. And I, after all these climbing experiences, I wrote a book called Enduring Patagonia that was about my, it's kind of like an alpine memoir of my collected Patagonian climbing experiences. That released in 2001. And after that, I was fishing around for new stories, Darn near got pushed out of business by the dot-com meltdown, but managed to hang on to buy my fingernails through that. And then as I was looking for a new story, it came from one of my climbing partners, this fellow Charlie Fowler, who's a very well-known American exploratory mountaineer. And his two obsessions in climbing were the mountains of Patagonia, where he and I had climbed together, and the mountains of China and Tibet. And he came back from one of his assignments, or rather trips, journeys in uh, along the eastern edge of the Tibetan plateau between China and Tibet, saying, called me up or emailed me when he got back, said, hey, Greg, you know, I keep hearing stories of these old World War II American plane wrecks in the eastern Himalayas, and you're a military history guy and a mountaineer, you should get a story sparked up on that. And, well, I thought that was a great idea. Um, but I was on an assignment at the time in Oman in the Middle East, and it was months before I killed that story off and really got looking at getting a book started. And as I knew it would be le planes left over from flying the hump, the airlift from India into China that happened during the Second World War. And um, as I was doing some web searching about that, I quickly ran across this website, cnac.org, that's about this airline I've written about, the China National Aviation Corporation. And I had never even heard of them before. And although I knew a lot about the big aviation stories around the outside of this airline, like um, the AVG, the Flying Tigers, of course, that sort of band of American mercenary pilots that flew and fought for China in early 1942, first half of 1942. That was one big thing that has to do with the CNAC story. I knew about Pan Am's Trans-Pacific flying, which is, you know, one of the great technological leaps of the 1930s, um, and CNAC has a role in that. And then I knew about the Hump airlift, and CNAC pioneered and prosecuted that. And as I was going through this website, kind of getting the the new this new story i'm like wow getting more and more excited this is a really good story and i hit their page about their annual reunion and i looked at the dates i'm like you're kidding me it was um the date for the reunion was only three weeks hence 
and it was in San Francisco, and I lived in the Bay Area. So mm-hmm. I called up Bill Mahar, who is the president of the CNAC Association, and explained that I was a writer and I was interested in doing a story about his airline and would it be okay if I came down and spent some time talking to him and his fellow veterans and this guy Bill is a crusty old Michigan fellow he's like hell yes come on (laughs) and so I went to the reunion I spent a long weekend with all of these old pilots the first time I went to the reunion was 2002 so 10 years ago and um When I left that reunion on the Sunday night, I was physically shaking with excitement. I believe that I discovered a story that good and that the room wasn't crawling with writers. Let's get into the material itself. You know, the way I read it, again, there are lots of characters and lots of things happen, but uh, I think overwhelmingly it's a story of two guys, William Bond and Moon Chin. Um, Let's start with um, William Bond. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, Bond was... For most of CNAC's existence, and it, it was a partnership between the nationalist Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek and Pan American Airways that flew and fought in China and operated between 1929 and 1949, Bond came to the airline in 1931, and he stayed with it all the way through to the end. And he is definitely the main character. You're correct in perceiving that, Marshall. And he carries the story. Um, uh, and he was a, re- a very remarkable guy. Um, he didn't have a college education, um, but he was a sort of well-bred Virginian from Petersburg, Virginia, from a very aristocratic but unmoneyed Virginia family. Um, and he went off to the First World War uh, with the 29th Division, the Blue and Gray, half Northern, half Southern, uh, which would have been a big deal in 1917, and came back an officer and he worked in heavy construction as a construction foreman from 1919, after he got back from France, to um, 1931, or 19, I take that back, till 1929. And it was Lindbergh's transatlantic flight that sort of inspired him to get out of heavy construction. You know, he was building roads and railway berms and tunnels and bridges. And although it was sort of important and lucrative work, it was not the cutting edge of progress, right? right? And was. And Lindbergh's flight really captivated him like it captivated the whole nation. And after Lindbergh's flight, he paid good cash money to get a flight from a barnstormer uh, near the Ohio construction bed he was working on. And, you know, from the air, that little construction site didn't look so impressive, uh, and, you know, aviation was changing the world every day, and he wanted to be a part of it. So he spent the next year, he was a, quite a cautious man, mulling the change. And then in 1929, he left his position with Langhorn and Langhorn Construction and um, caught on at Curtis Wright, which was the original partner in CNAC. He built a factory for Curtis Wright outside of Baltimore, but it came online and finished in 1931, late, I take late 1930, with the Depression starting to hit hard, and um, that factory never got any orders. So it was sort of sitting idle, and Bond had stayed on as a glorified caretaker, and there's no job in the world more insecure than a foreman in charge of an idle factory, right? And he accepted a summons to China to run Curtis Wright, help run Curtis Wright's um, airline business in China, which was foundering at the time. And again, he accepted it so that he would run less risk of joining the growing legion of unemployed. And, um, and he would spend the next 19 years in the Middle Kingdom developing aviation there. Um, and... Uh, you know, he got over there and he knew nothing about flying, but he was a courteous man and he knew how to treat people fairly. There was a big problem with Caucasians going over to work with the Chinese companies at the time and treating the Chinese terribly, not treating them with kindness and respect on their individual faults and merits. Um, and Bond could do that. He could, you know, if a man was a slug, he was a slug. And if a man was good, then Bond treated him well and rewarded him. And it didn't matter 
the color of, the, of his skin or the shape of his eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the real key to Bond's long-run success in China is that he built successful relationships with the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So what was the relationship between uh, CNAC? It wasn't CNAC at the time, though, was it, when it was founded? It was China Airways, or what? Is that right? Uh, um, it went through a couple iterations before it caught... Uh, um, the name CNAC, and I think China Airways Federal that you mentioned is actually a holding company that held CNAC. I can't remember what it was, to be honest with you. Um, but essentially, there were two parts to the partnership, 55% held by the nationalist Chinese government and 45% held by the American partner, which to begin with was Curtis Wright. And that the fact that it's a minority partnership, that the American interest is a minority interest, becomes crucial in the story because it's the way that Pan Am end runs um, the most favored nation treaty clauses um, and allows Pan Am to get into China. Now, let me explain. Curtis Wright was foundering and, and CNAC wasn't making money even though Bond was there. They were barely getting by. They were covering their operating costs but not servicing their debt effectively. And so um, Curtis Wright uh, owed more money to the full capitalization of the airline based on their original contract and they wanted out. So they sold their 45% share to Pan Am and Pan Am bought in because they were developing the big holy grail of international aviation in the 1930s was the big oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific. And it was clear that whoever could cast an airline across the big oceans would make a fortune. And that was Pan Am's mission in life was to cross the big oceans. And the, the Pacific was actually easier for the airplanes of that day because it had those mid-ocean islands that the airline could hop across and it could hop, it would, the route was San Francisco to Honolulu, Honolulu to Midway, Midway to Wake, Wake to Guam, Guam to Manila. <laughs> they wanted to go to China because Shanghai was the most important commercial city in the Orient and that airline across the Pacific wouldn't be profitable unless they could get Shanghai. But the Chinese government wouldn't grant Pan Am landing rights in China because if they granted an American flag carrier the rights to land in China, um, that automatically extended the right to all other most favored nations. And one of those most favored nations was Japan. And the nationalist Chinese government wasn't going to grant anything to an American company that also granted Japanese companies the right to land in China unless Japan abrogated its treaty rights or sank into the ocean, right? It was absolutely unacceptable. But by buying into this minority interest in CNAC, CNAC stayed as a Chinese airline. And so CNAC could fly from Shanghai to Hong Kong and Pan Am could fly from Manila to Hong Kong the passengers could train, change to the CNAC plane and then take the flight the rest of the way back to Shanghai. And Pan Am would have a stake in the route the whole way from San Francisco to Shanghai, but it would not trigger these most favored nation complications that were certain to collapse the venture. Mm-hmm. And Bond had no experience running an airline. Prior to getting to China, he had none at all. He knew how to fly. He'd taken flying lessons and private's pilot's license, but, you know, he wasn't really qualified to even be a commercial co-pilot. He he was a businessman. And one angle of this story that I found very fascinating is the sort of business angle of developing an airline. Um, You know, again, I didn't appreciate any of the complexities that he would face over the next 19 years, and they were tremendous. Uh, And and he was a remarkable man, uh, you know, very much a character-driven businessman whose sort of word was his bond and his personal integrity was crucial to every contract in a country that doesn't have a functioning legal system. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, is it at this point uh, that Moon Chin comes uh, into the picture? And can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, that's correct. I, um, Moon was Moon Chin is still alive in over in Hillsborough, just south of San Francisco. I was just over at his house this morning. He's 98 years old. 
He started flying for CNAC in China in March of 1933. Um, and he would rise from being a barefoot, probably destined to be illiterate Chinese peasant to owning his own airline in one lifetime. And, and one of the most remarkable life arcs of the 20th century. And he's just a delightful old fellow with, he's very spry, even at 98, he's still popping up around his house and showing me to my seat. And we had like a three hour conversation this morning. He's such a delightful man. Um, and he's totally accurate in his recall of these years and very disciplined about his facts, which I cannot grant to some of the other Caucasian <laughs> who were not quite so disciplined in their memories. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's move the story. So they set up this airline and let's move the story forward a little bit to 1937. It is in 1937, I think, that the Japanese actually start to move down the coast and into the interior of China and they cut off uh, basically access to China by sea route. And, and then what happens? Um, well, CNAC was hubbed out of Shanghai, and Japan had been biting off chunks of China through the 1930s. You know, Manchuria in 1931, uh, Jehol province in 1933, uh, the rest of Jehol and parts of Jahar, or Chahar province in 1935. Um, and they made another play to bite off North China in 1937 after the Marco Polo Bridge incident that's pretty well known, this sort of confrontation between a Chinese and Japanese infantry companies at a bridge outside of Peking. Well, the Japanese used that as a pretext for a full-scale invasion of North China, and they very much wanted to confine that invasion to North China. Um, however, the Chinese didn't roll over in 1937. They counterattacked, and they counterattacked in Shanghai, where the Japanese had substantial commercial, economic, and interests in the northern part of the international concession in Shanghai, and this huge battle breaks out between the nationalist Chinese and the Japanese in Shanghai that ends up becoming a battle uh, about the same scale as Stalingrad in wow. terms of the number of people engaged. It's a very important battle, but it's largely forgotten in the West, and all of Shanghai, outside of the foreign concessions, outside of the international settlement and the French concession, was raised, and it was the sixth biggest city in the world at the time. Um, well, that very much upset CNAC, because um, um, Shanghai was their hub. Uh, American Airlines having Dallas invaded, you know. <laughs> structure and they um and it runs afoul of american neutrality legislation in 1937 where the state department tells the american personnel flying for cnac to quit that they cannot fly in support of the nationalist chinese war effort except at risk of losing their citizenship um and so it looks like pan am's position has collapsed entirely, and they're very substantial about at the time, maybe a million and a half dollar investment, which is a lot of modern money when you use an inflation adjuster. Um, they were going to lose that entirely. But Bond refused, and, and all, by the way, all of the Pan Am leadership was willing to write that off except for Bond. Bond had invested six years of his life at that point in developing this airline. It was the only accomplishment he had in aviation. He had a, a wife and a, a newborn son at the time, um, and, and he refused to let it go under. He insisted that he be allowed to go back to China and try and fight and reinstate the American interest in this airline. And it's one of my favorite parts of the whole book when Bond goes back to China after the Marco Polo Bridge and the Battle of Shanghai breakout and tries to reinstate the American interest in CNAC and is eventually, it takes him six months, but he is eventually successful. Um, and then from then at the end of 1937, you know, by then the, the Chinese have lost the Battle of Shanghai and, you know, consequent to that, the Japanese conquer Nanking, you have the infamous rape of Nanking and the nationalist government flees up the Yangtze River, sets up an interim headquarters in Hangkow, 
and um, and then CNAC starts flying between Hong Kong and Hangzhou, and it and it becomes the most important link to the from the nationalist government to the rest of the outside world. And these airline links allow the nationalist Chinese government to function on the world stage um, through this war. It would have taken a month to get a message out by foot from Hankou or Chunking to Hong Kong. And um, uh, with an airliner, it took five hours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were, it was crucial to the Chinese government um, this airline, it became a, a really valuable strategic wartime asset. Of course, that is not lost on the enemy either. The Japanese are well aware of the contribution that this airline is making to the Chinese war effort. Um, and so they start hunting China's civil airliners. And the very first airliner in world history ever shot down by hostile air action is a CNAC DC-2 shot down leaving Hong Kong for um, uh, Hankou, uh, or rather to Chungking, leaving Hong Kong for Chungking in August of 1938. And as soon as the, the pilot was a fellow named Hugh Woods, who was from Winfield, Kansas, and he's a real stalwart in the story as well. Uh, Hugh Woods, Chuck Sharp, and Moon Chin are probably the three main supporting characters beneath Bond. Woody was at the controls of this airplane, and he is set upon by five Japanese pontoon biplanes, I think possibly operating from a seaplane tender in the Pearl River Delta, although I haven't been able to confirm like what unit of the Japanese Navy that squadron was operating from. One of those sort of history details that sat you and gnaws at you, and I still don't know 10 years later. Um, well, anyway, they forced their shooting at Woody's airliner. He's got 16 civilians on board, 14, 16 civilians on board. They force him down. He belly lands the plane in a river because it was the season when the rice paddies were dry and, um, you know, the raised dikes of the rice paddies were terrible terrain for an emergency landing. So he belly lands the plane into a river perfectly. But the five Japanese biplanes stay behind to machine gun the plane. They strafed it for an hour, riddling it with gunfire. Well, Woody thinks he's done a great service. He has his steward and radio operator pop the side door and like, hey, unbuckle, guys, and swim for safety. And the Chinese passengers sit there doing nothing, you know, fixed blank with fear. And Woody looks at their face. He's like, Jesus Christ, they can't swim. (laughs) So... He spies a sampan on the shore. He swims for the sampan, and he's not a very good swimmer wearing boots and his flight clothes. He darn near drowns, and he attracts the gunfire of these Japanese planes. They machine gun him in the water, and um, he gets to the sampan, but there's a strong current in this river, and it's taken his airplane, you know, half a mile away in the meantime. Uh, and the the Japanese strafe it mercilessly, and, and 14... Let's see, 16 of the 19 passengers were killed on board, including a pregnant woman and, their, and her infant son. Um, and um, Woody lived, uh, one passenger survived, and his radio operator survived. And that r- radio operator, who was a Chinese fellow named Joe Lo, was one of Moon Chin's best friends. So interviewing moon about this incident and asking him about it and how it affected the airline and you know well did you ask joe Lowe what it was like and moon in his very phlegmatic voice said well yeah joe said to me moon damn good thing i'm a swimmer (laughs) (laughs) so uh could you uh i guess you already have started to do this but explain to us a little bit how they were really drawn into the war effort and how the cnac uh comes to be associated with um sort of preliminary American efforts in the area, and then finally they are basically taken on board? That's a a good question, Marshall. And actually, the reason was is that Pan Am had very close ties in the State Department and the Navy Department, which were the two arms of the American government most closely associated with Far Eastern policy, right? Um, And I think my surmise is that this is one of the big reasons that the Chinese did, in fact, invite Pan Am back 
into the partnership after the disasters of the last half of 1937 was because CNAC, they could see, was this very important or very potentially important, powerful tool through which to influence American policy. And Bond's wife, her name was Catherine Dunlop, Kitsy Dunlop, Catherine Dunlop Bond. Her father was sort of an old-school Washington attorney with strong connections in Washington as well. And they became important to, you know, Stanley K. Hornbeck, who was the Undersecretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, was an old personal friend of Bond's wife's family. Um, And, you know, just the ability to have non-governmental information come back to the American government had a lot of credibility. You know, Bond and Pan Am were businessmen. They were not politicians. They were not Americans on the Chinese government payroll. And there were a lot of them. Uh, but, but Bond was somehow seen as more distant from Chinese influence and therefore more of a neutral opinion. And his, his opinion about events in China was very closely listened to by, um, by American officials. Indeed, if you happen to read the Morgenthau Diaries, which are collections of paperwork off of Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau's desk. There's a letter or two that Bond wrote to Pan Am that found their way across his desk. And it's a very exciting, first-person, informal view of what's going on in China. And, and through this period, American public opinion is gradually being pulled away from neutrality into a strongly pro-Chinese stance, right? Um, and CNAC played a big part in that. CNAC was a very well-known company in the late 1930s and 1940s. Um, wrote a huge article about CNAC that was Collier's in 1941. Um, uh, there were articles in Fortune magazine in the New York Times about this. You know, Pan Am made, was like the apple of the day. It made <laughs> it was the most exciting technology company in the world, um, and so it, CNAC was this extremely important way for the Chinese government to influence the American government. At remove, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, let's move the story forward a little bit. CNAC becomes involved in the ongoing conflict between the uh, Chiang Kai-shek and then the, the, the Japanese authorities. Uh, the, the Japanese then attack the United States and uh, yeah. Pearl Harbor. Uh, what uh, follows that? Well, it's one of my f- most exciting anecdotes in the book is Pearl Harbor Day in Hong Kong, which is 8 December 1941 because of the international dateline, of course. And as Moon Chin was telling me the story this morning, and it's in the book, he was in bed that morning. He had stayed up late the night before to change a light fixture on his ceiling, and he was sort of enjoying a lion not having to work that morning. When he hears a lot of engine noise out the window, he sits up in bed, and he could see Kai Tak Airport, which is the old airport in Hong Kong, from his window. And he could see the Pan Am flying boat that flew the Hong Kong to Manila route tied up at the dock down there. And all of a sudden, he sees these planes dip down to really low altitude, kind of skimming Kowloon Bay. And he's like, that's odd. What are they doing? They must be RAF planes. And all of a sudden, the water around um, the Pan Am flying boat starts churning with machine gun fire. And then the plane erupts into flame, exploding when they got its gas tanks. And uh, and then, you know, Japanese-level bombers came over and bombed uh, the planes that were outside the hangar. Um and, you know, Moon Jin immediately went off to the market and bought a huge bag of rice hmm. and soft fish, knowing that prices were going to skyrocket in, sec- in a few minutes once everybody knew what was happening. He got summoned by the company back because uh, three airplanes had survived the raid and they had one other um, DC-2 or DC-3 out on routes flying back. So... You know, the airline spends the next two nights flying evacuation flights from Hong Kong um, at night, again, because they couldn't fly in the daytime. They'd be shot down for sure. And then they would overnight in the Chinese interior. And then as soon as it got dark the next night, they would fly into Hong Kong and fly another round of evacuation flights. And it's super exciting stuff where them they're flying wildly overloaded airplanes that literally will not take off that, that day or that night, Moon's airplane, the only way he got off is he was running down the runway with the tailwheel of his DC-2 up, 
and he he hit the berm at the end of the runway that was like uh, against a rock retaining seawall in the waters of Kowloon Bay, and he like hurtled his airplane into the air. His co-pilot ratcheted up the uh, landing gear, which had to be done by hand on a DC-2, and the plane falls out of the sky, and he's not trying to climb, because he knows he can't climb, and it gets caught in the ground effect off the water and barely stays in the air, and only as he used fuel and the plane got lighter was he able to climb. <laughs> that, that's, that's truly remarkable. Well, uh, clearly the CNSC has to adapt in some way to... Uh, Pearl Harbor and uh, the war with the Japanese. How, what did they do exactly? Well, um, Hong Kong had been the nationalist government's main access to the rest of the world, and that got closed down by those attacks, and the Japanese captured Hong Kong three week, within three weeks on Christmas Day. Um, and so CNAC developed another air route into China, and that is the infamous hump airlift mm-hmm. that, um, that um, CNAC pioneered in late 1941 and 1942 um, as like a backdoor into China, which um, left from Upper Assam in the extreme northeastern corner of India, flew straight east, oddly enough, over the top of Burma, and then over the eastern spur of the Himalayas that sort of fish hooks around the western border of Burma and down the Burma-Yunnan border, and then on to Kunming. And that, that airlift became nationalist China's lifeline to the outside world through the remaining years of the Second World War. And I am 100% certain that that wouldn't have been undertaken without CNAC's pioneering efforts. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about flying um, over these mountains. I mean, we commonly today fly over mountains. It's not a problem from 30,000 feet. There are no 30,000-foot mountains. But uh, here it's, it's a different story. Same problem when the service ceiling of a fully loaded DC-2 is 20,000 and you are flying over mountains that go to 20,000 feet or close to and then north of your flight route go far beyond 20,000 feet. And again, that's cake in good weather. In bad weather, that is a totally different story. And if you were flying an airplane at 20,000 feet and you started catching ice and you could catch thousands of pounds of ice could glom onto an airplane in just a few minutes, your plane couldn't hold altitude anymore, and it would start to sag out of the sky ever so slowly. Um, uh, and you would just hope that you wouldn't hit a mountain if you were in a cloud, right? And and the, the old pilots describe, you know, the, the plane sort of losing altitude, sagging through 19,000 feet, and them getting mighty nervous, through seven or through eighteen and seventeen thousand feet, and now they're definitely among peaks that high, sixteen thousand feet, and their seat cushions starting to itch, as they said, and just you know really hoping that they could get over or into warmer air, and the ice would come off of these planes. And and CNAC was very good. The Army Air Corps prosecuted the airlift alongside of. CNAC, but their pilots were nowhere near as experienced as the commercial pilots that flew for CNAC, um, and they suffered terrible losses prosecuting this airlift uh, because their pilots weren't up to the harsh conditions of the flying. Mm-hmm. Now, did Chin fly these? Oh, yeah. Moon, yeah. Flew. Moon has thousands and thousands of hours of flight time. Uh, and in early 1942, one of the original conceptions of the Hump airlift was to fly support for Chenault's Flying Tigers that you mentioned earlier. And, and CNAC was very much the air transport auxiliary of the AVG, the Flying Tigers. And the Flying Tigers wouldn't have had gasoline to fight the Japanese if CNAC hadn't brought it to them. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask, what sort of things did they take over and what sort of things did they take back? And how important is that? Well, um, uh, the number one cargo through the years was aviation fuel, right? Because f- for both the Chinese Air Force and for the Flying Tigers and then for Chenault's 14th Air Force, um, that China, Free China had no fuel refining capability at all. So all fuels had to be imported. Um, and the other thing that they flew into China by the ton, by the hundreds of ton, was money. Because China was being crippled by inflation during the war years, and uh, they didn't print their money in China. They printed it by the ABC, the American Banking 
or banknote corporation printing security firm, which I think still operates out of Kentucky, and they would fly that money, and they'd fly tons of money, literally metric tons of money over the Himalayas in their cargo planes. Um, bringing out of China, they brought um, a lot of tungsten because China controlled a large portion of the world's tungsten supply. And another thing that was very, totally strange is bristles shorn from Chinese hogs. Because the U.S. Navy very highly prized Chinese hog bristles for paintbrushes. And <laughs> the Navy needs, it's a lot of paint, which means a lot of paintbrushes. So they flew tons of Chinese hog bristles out that painted the ships of the U.S. Navy in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Now, were uh, these pilots paid by the government? That is our government. Or were they, uh, how are they funded? It's always a private company. Now, they were operating a freight contract for the U.S., for the Lend-Lease Administration, actually. So, um, and, but they were paid as civilians and treated as such, um, which is one of the great charms of this story in my eyes, is that although these guys were flying what are essentially military missions from 1938 on, they were always civilians, so never subjected to military discipline off-duty. And there is no end of bad behavior that highly paid American pilots loose in China and India can get up to in the 1930s and 40s. And believe me, these guys did. (laughs) I know you tell a story in the book about uh, some pilots, which uh, I don't know if they were CNAC pilots, I think they were, that were uh, lost. They did not come back, but then they were later found smoking opium and things. Yes. Rosbert and Ridge Hamill. And Joe Rosbert sadly passed on a few years ago, but I was able to interview him at length before he died. They were on one of these planes trying, a cargo flight, trying to get over the Himalayas, trying to fly supplies to China, and they caught an immense load of ice. They were still early enough in the flight that they turned back in this terrible storm. They were blown far off course. Um, and they had lost stacks of altitude, I think, um, down to like 14,000 feet, which there are zillions of peaks that high in the area. So they are in mortal terror of their lives. And when the planes would ice over, even the cockpit window would ice over, so they couldn't see out, and their defroster had frozen. So Rossbert is holding his hand up against the window to defrost a hole so he can see out. And he can tell that there's light coming behind the clouds uh, and they've been flying blind for more than an hour. He pulls his hand out of the way. Oh, my God, there's a, a mountain or a, a high point right in front of him. He grabs the controls, slams right rudder, pulls the plane to the right. His co-pilot does exactly the same thing. They just missed the high point and clipped a rocky saddle to the left of it with the bottom of the airplane, tore the plane to pieces, and it whooped down into a snowfield on the far side. Rothbard's got a badly broken ankle. Ridge Hamill, his co-pilot, has a terrible sprain, and they are crash-landed in the mountains, and they have no idea where they are. Well, the storm breaks the next day. They've huddled up in the back. Their radio operator was killed because he was standing up on impact. Um, They uh, huddle up in the back of the plane and wrap themselves in a parachute, which is essentially the only survival supplies they have. Plus, Rossbert was smuggling a gallon of Coca-Cola syrup to a, um, a friend of Kunming as a gift, which is a very handsome gift at a time when China is under siege. Well, they stayed alive drinking, eating snow cokes, which was coke syrup dribbled <laughs> snowballs and eating them. Um, and when they looked out the plane after the storm had broken, if they'd have been flying five feet higher, they would have missed that saddle, and then they would have hit the huge mountainside on the far side, and that would have been the end of them. And if they'd have been flying five foot lower, they'd have clipped that saddle straight on at 180 miles an hour, and that would have been the end of them. And you literally, Rossbert said, you couldn't land a plane in there on a perfect day and hope to survive. <laughs> so they stayed the plane for seven days, um, and they've been blown far off a course by this storm, and they're not hearing the engine noise that they should be hearing if they were anywhere near the normal flyways, right? So after seven days, they decide that their only hope to survive is to abandon the plane and kind of crawl and hobble to safety. And they spent the next 40 days crawling and hobbling to safety. They crawled down off of that mountainside. It took them another week, by which time they were nearly starved to death. Um, And then they came across a, um, a Mishmi tribe, a Mishmi village 
um, and the, the natives took them in and they survived on, on polenta and, and bananas and uh, smoking opium. You know, they grew poppies up there and, and the, the, the villagers gradually passed them further and further down out of the highlands until they contacted a British, British medical patrol and then they had to walk like the last 80 miles out of the, the jungles to safety. Mm-hmm. I imagine that uh, their colleagues were surprised to see them. Yeah, well, Rossbert's best friend, Dick Rossi. Now, both Rossbert and Rossi were aces in the AVG, the Flying Tigers, and they were roommates in Calcutta. And Rossi hadn't seen him in 47 days. You'd assumed he was dead for 40 days. And so he'd sold all of his stuff, right? Um, and and he'd already moved another pilot into their into their apartment. And so when Rossbert showed up, you know, Rossi's like, hey, you want a drink? And uh, and Rossbert says to him, you know, Dick, where are all my Latin albums? He had a big collection of Desi Arnaz Latin albums. He was a big fan of Latin music. And, and Rossbert sort of deadpanned at him and said, you know, what albums, Dick? Because he'd sold them already. And Rossbert described to me this like sudden flare of anger that his best friend has sold his favorite stuff and then, like, the anger, you know, passing through him as he realized that, you know, of course I'd have done the same thing. You know, it's war. We've been watching our friends get killed for two years now. or a, Yeah. And and he was just, you know, happy to be alive. He's like, yeah, give me that drink, Dick. And, you know, they stayed. They were best friends until the day they died. Mm-hmm. So uh, take us to the... Uh the, it's exactly the end of the story, but the end of the C, of CNAC and uh, Bond's involvement therein. Um, CNAC collapsed when Nationalist China collapsed, but Bond's love affair with Nationalist China had ended in 1944 when his best Chinese friend, this fellow named M. Y. Tong, who was a high-ranking executive in the um, Bank of Canton, was executed by Nationalist government. Gestapo squads, the blue shirts, um, I think essentially to send a message to TV Song, who was M.Y. Tong's patron, um, and with no trial, trumped up charges, the whole thing, and Bond was utterly appalled that his you know best Chinese friend would end up crumpled in a heap against some dingy mud brick wall uh, with his brains splattered over the boots of some Kuomintang Gestapo enforcer. And that really opened his eyes to the evils of the nationalist government. And um, because most Americans at that time in 1944 assumed that China, that the nationalists would lead China to unification after the war, Bond started seriously thinking that they might not win the looming civil war. So he conducted a very ingenious and devious negotiation to extract a large portion of Pan Am's investment in a contract renegotiation that had been scheduled to happen in 1945, and and he did. He extracted a you know like 45 million dollars in modern profit for Pan Am as a result of that negotiation, um, uh, which was a phenomenal business accomplishment from an investment that Pan Am had been willing to write off entirely in 1947. Right, Bond's efforts personal efforts created more than $40 million worth of modern value for Pan Am. Um, And then as a result of that sell-down, Pan Am had a much smaller stake in the airline through the years of the Chinese Civil War. And then there was another sell-down at the end when the whole thing collapsed. Um, But Bond had seen the writing on the wall several, three, four years before, three years before many other Westerners did. uh, and he was looking to get Pan Am out of China after his friend's execution. And that's the emotional climax of China's wings. You know, like you said earlier, we've talked a lot about politics and events, but it's very much William Bond's story. And the emotional climax is his best friend getting this grossly unfair execution. Mm-hmm. So Bond leaves China, right? Yes, uh, Bond... Well, Bond leaves China. He's promoted to vice president for the Orient for Pan Am, but it's quite a tombstone promotion. Bond only hung on with Pan Am for about another 18 more months before deciding that aviation was a young man's game and and retiring. And he retired back to Virginia, 
where uh, he ran a farm for the rest of his life, and he had, he had endured this terrible separation from his wife through most of the years of the war when she was after the war broke out she went back to live in washington and he would only see her a few times a year when he had to come back to washington or new york for business and they were devoted to each other they really seemed to have had a wonderful marriage and a big subcurrent of the story is this love between the two of them and they finished together you know they had their twilight years on this virginia farm and and uh you know Bondi died first in the uh, early 80s, and, and Kitsy followed him a few years later. And then they were seldom separated from the end of the Second World War until they passed on in the, in the early 80s. And he never went back to China. He never went back to China. I, th- um, I think they might have gone to Taiwan once because there was a big CNAC reunion that did go back to sort of be honored by Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, you know, who they all knew. Or, you know, they'd all flown... Madame, in particular, a number of times, and Bond had had many business meetings with Madame. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time, and this is—I I was going to say—it's a—it's uh, a rip and yarn this book, but actually, it's many strands interwoven of various sort of really uh, incredibly good and interesting stories. And these stories are also incredibly well told, and I'm very much encourage people to go out and get this book. It's all too often the case that history books are a little bit wooden. This one is not. Let me tell you what, I wasn't joking about the film rights. I can see it coming. I really can. Um, Let me uh, close the interview by asking you our traditional final question, Gregory, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, um, I am exploring ideas at this point. I'm very much looking for a good story uh, because History books, you know, I don't necessarily say I'm a historian. I'm a narrative nonfiction writer, right? I try and tell stories that are true. And so I'm looking for a great true story. I'm exploring some stuff around the 1934 general strike in San Francisco, the Battle of San Francisco. Um, there's There's a Reformation story that I'm looking into because one of my great climbing buddies is one of the world's experts on John Calvin of all the strange things, and he would be a great window into uh, the history of the Reformation. Um, And then a third one is a very small war crime that happened near my unit in the Panama invasion during Operation Just Cause, and I'm very interested in doing like a... Um, Truman Capote in cold blood style uh, analysis of how this one small war crime that results in the unjust death of one Panamanian woman affects the lives of everybody in it, both the people that perpetrated it and the Panamanian families that were involved on the other side, um, you know, because it's very important to keep your militaries operating in line with the rule of law. A story that interests me as well. So I'm writing proposals and thinking about those three, and I will pick one and then devote another couple of years of my life to extracting the story. Well, and I'm sure you'll do a fantastic job, and when one of those terrific projects is done, I hope you'll come back on New Books in History. I would be delighted, Marshall. It's really nice to talk to somebody uh, as well-informed on the subject as yourself, so thank you very much. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Have a great day. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Greg Crouch about his book, China's Wings, War, Intrigue, Romance, and Adventure in the Middle Kingdom during the Golden Age of Flight. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.